Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today, amidst all the labor unrest in the country from Wisconsin to Alabama, we turn our attention and focus to unions. Populating the news with stories both good and bad, we've enlisted some help navigating this landscape of legislation, collective bargaining, and consensus. Our guest is Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, joining us here on this beautiful day in Harvard Square. Welcome to the EdCast, Randy. It is great to be at Harvard. So what is one of the most common misconceptions that people might have about unions, your work, their role in reform? What is the story not being told? What's not being corrected? So the most important um, uh, piece of information I can say about unions is that it is a collection an amalgamation of workers who join together to have a voice in their workplace. And whether it is a voice about economic dignity and respect, or whether it is a voice about trying to change um, a school system for the good of the kids and the, and, and, and the teachers who serve the kids, collective bargaining and unions are about a voice and about a voice in unison. And so this is a week where we celebrate or honor the 100th anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist fire. And we see and remember from that point, we are about fighting for social justice, for economic dignity, for democracy, for respect, and for opportunity. That's what unions are. A little bit about your personal experience on unions. You were in charge of the American Federation of Teachers and formerly led the United Federation of Teachers. The biggest adjustment from the UFT to the AFT, aside from the vowel change in the acronym. Um, The biggest adjustment was it's a really big country. And so I was a New Yorker. And, you know, just like all New Yorkers, who think that New York is the center of the universe, one realizes that as beloved as my New York is, there is so much around the country. So I used to go to, I tried to go to three schools a week. You can't actually really go to three cities a week or schools in three different cities a week. But the biggest adjustment was the scope and the scale um, in terms of all the state issues, all the federal issues, 3,400 locals. Um, But what was not dissimilar is that teachers are amazing wherever you go. Teachers want to make a difference in the lives of kids. Teachers, wherever you go, are taking money out of their pockets to buy supplies. These days, taking money to buy food for kids. The teachers are the salt of the universe. Let's move on to a different city, Madison, Wisconsin. From a union perspective, what do the protests in Madison about collective bargaining, the legislation, the governor, the whole affair, what does that say about the relevancy or necessity of unions? And I'm curious your particular involvement in resolving any of these problems or any anecdotes from visiting the city. So I think Wisconsin um, in 2011 will probably be even more important than Wisconsin in 1959 when it was the birthplace, birthplace, excuse me, of public sector collective bargaining. Because what has happened now is that the governor of Wisconsin has made it quite clear that this is not an issue about budget. This is trying 
to shift to a highly extreme ideological position that tries to silence the voices of people he does not agree with and silence them through eviscerating their economic rights as well as their political voice. At the same time, trying to elevate the political voice and the economic um, benefits of people he agrees with, like the Koch brothers. Tell us a little bit about your visit to Madison. Well, I've been to Madison um, a couple of times since um, this started um, this January. Um, the governor, uh, after the unions had worked out an agreement, a budgetary agreement with the former governor to, that included $100 million of concessions, the new governor, before he was even governor, um, found a way to squelch that deal and to um, create this agenda um, that had nothing to do, again, with budget and everything to do with silencing workers. Remember, um, public sector workers did not create the recession that we're still working ourselves out of. Um, it had a lot more to do with people who were on the top floor of banking headquarters than people who were in front of classrooms or who are you know, ensuring that our water is safe. So I've been in Wisconsin um, really supporting our members. We actually represent 20,000 members, 20,000 workers in Wisconsin, including many on the front lines in the um, colleges and universities. And in fact, since the governor started um, his um, assault against public workers and, and, and collective bargaining, three campuses of the University of Wisconsin have elected in secret ballot elections to organize. Um, what you're seeing there is basically a governor who is at war with the people of his state. Um, whether it be kids, whether it be parents, whether it be seniors, whether it be people who work for the people, um, he basically has turned his back on them and said, I don't want to hear you, and I'm going to make sure that you have no power to be heard. And they are fighting back like I have never seen in my generation of leadership. I've never seen this level of fight back. It's hard to make predictions, but how do you, how do you see this resolving? Well, look, they, they um, won the last election, not on the issue of eviscerating labor rights, because as you see, um, people in Wisconsin, um, if, if the election was held to get today, Governor Walker would not be governor. People in Wisconsin do not like the direction of that, that, that state, as, as well as people in the United States of America. By two-thirds, one-third margins, people are saying public workers should not lose their rights to collective bargaining. They may not know what collective bargaining is, but in America, we believe in empowering people, not in taking away people's rights. So, uh, you know, right now what's happening is that it's the, the whole um, notion about whether the um, budget, the so-called budget bill was legitimately passed is in the courts. It's, it's been enjoined in the courts that, that the legislature is still trying to get it enacted, even over trying to defy court order. Um, so, you know, they have used a lot of very highly doubtful political and parliamentary um, procedural motions to try to get this passed. That's going to wend its way through the courts. But 
bottom line is this. This is not a marathon. Uh, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And so there's a whole bunch of signatures being collected as we speak to recall some of the senators who did this. Um, those elections may happen as early as June. Um, if that happens, they may change the um, balance of power in the Senate so that those 14 Democrats who actually left the state to give us an opportunity to make this case, um, they would be empowered to actually have a real voice. Um, and ultimately, what you see in Wisconsin is that despite the fact that um, the people, the represented people, don't have a majority in that legislature, they are fighting on the streets to get a voice and to have these folks listen to the regular people. Shifting gears sort of a little bit, we like to take a lot of questions from our social media outlets, Twitter and Facebook. We have one from Susan Graham in Maine. She asks, I'd like to hear her thoughts on the Common Core state standards. There's been much back and forth on if these standards will stick or are they just educational trends? Uh, I'm sort of curious, along with Susan, of the ideas out there, which ones do you consider sticky? Which ones are more trends? So, you know, one of the reasons that teachers get so skeptical of um, so-called reformers is that they are really tired of the silver bullet of reform. That, you know, there's a fad that comes in and then it leaves, and then another fad that comes in, and they want to see some proof behind, um, be behind initiatives in, in the educational sphere, and they're right to want to see some proof. Our, our field should not be an evidence-free zone. Having said that, what's clear right now is that the economy demands that our job in public education is not simply to prepare kids for life, as, as important as that is, but to also prepare kids to be knowledge knowers. Um, and, and that means that we have to move our schools from an industrial model where, where they have been embedded in some ways in the last 100 years, you know, so a little bit different, but basically, um, you know, focused on um, what kids needed in the industrial age to a knowledge age. And that is the fundamental shift we have to make. So at the same time, as the gap between rich and poor is getting greater and greater, and that schools are more segregated, and we have a greater um, degree of poor kids, we have to focus like a laser in ensuring that we turn around schools for those um, who need it most. At the same time as we do that, we have to ramp everything up to help kids become critical thinkers and problem solvers. Knowing that, that means that we have to focus on quality, on, um, teacher, on, on teaching and learning in terms of teacher preparation, teacher support, as well as evaluation. We also have to focus on curriculum um, tied or aligned to the new um, Common Core, but not and, and, and ensure that teachers don't have to be making this up every single day, um, that they have um, between themselves and others working together um, a real treasure trove of rich curricular material. And the third is we can't do it alone. We need community to help us. It does, I, I'm reminded of what Secretary of State Hillary Clinton used to say, it does take a village to raise kids. So we need community, but what kids really need is 
ensuring that they have the wraparound services around schools so that schools are like community centers and there are social services and health services and after school services around schools so that we trump other socioeconomic challenges of kids. The New York Daily News referred to you as tough, savvy, and with smarts to spare. Being a union leader is not easy work. In your opinion, what are some of the qualities that make a good union president? Well, you know, this is going to be counterintuitive. Um, as I've uh, spent more and more time doing this work, work I love because the work we do for kids and for the people who teach kids is the best work on earth. Um, we, as a, the, the probably the most important thing we can do these days is find ways to work together in collaboration for the common good. Um, find common ground and work together and move our institutions so that people have public confidence about them. And so people believe that the American dream is ahead of them, not behind them. And so as a leader, the most important thing to do is to help create that climate um, as opposed to um, you know, engage in the toxicity, try to fight back against the toxicity and the polarized environment we find ourselves in, and to listen as well as lead. When you listen to the voices of the people you represent, be them teachers, be they teachers, paraprofessionals, school secretaries, janitors, college professors, that is an amazing tribute to them and hugely respects them. You've been interview interviewed hundreds of times, maybe thousands. Many questions deal with policy and work-related. Let's stray away from that for a minute. Randy Weingarten, what is your favorite book? Okay, I have two favorite books. One is The Power Broker, about Robert Moses, because after all, I am a New Yorker. And the second is Michael Chabon's book about the adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Imagination as well as moving forward, assuming you think Robert Moses was moving forward, but he was certainly a leader for his time. Randy Weingarten, your least favorite subject in school? Oh, I was terrible at foreign language. And when you're terrible as a subject, it becomes your least favorite subject, um, even though we all need to be multilingual. Randy Weingarten, your favorite movie with the word Superman in the title. <laughs> Lois Lane and Clark Kent, where are you when we need you? Randy Weigarten, thank you very much for appearing on the show, and thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you, and thank you for having me, and thank you, Harvard, for this amazing day that I've had here. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.